Okay, welcome back. So make sure that you have your handout that's been passed to you. Okay, I don't know how this is going to go, but uh, I usually don't like to do afternoon lectures or teachings. It's one of the toughest to do, and uh, I can understand this. And so again, if you do feel sleepy, halfway drowsy, and you remember the uh, parable of the ten bridesmaids sleeping, <laughs> well, when you hear the shout, you better wake up, okay? <laughs> okay, but it's okay if you can, you know, if you just want to just stand, uh, rise up where you are, and walk around, it's fine, okay? All right. So let me just do a quick recap again. Okay, thus far in the first session that we learned about that the first session about the four signs that Jesus talked about his coming back. And in that first session we learned the main point that Jesus is telling us is to exhort us always to be ready for his return and never never to be caught unprepared. Then in our last teaching just this morning we studied the parable of the 10 bridesmaids and we learned that the sin of the foolish bridesmaid was not so much one of commission, but of omission, essentially neglect. And from that parable, we learn an important part of preparing for Christ's return is really to have a personal relationship with Him so that on the day when He finally arrives, when we see Him face to face, Jesus will not say those words, I never knew you. Okay? Well, this afternoon, we're looking at the... Uh, the second of the parable that is in Matthew 25, and that is the uh, parable of the talents. Matthew 25, verses 14 all the way to 20 or 30. Let me just read that for us again in New Testament, or uh, rather the New International Version. Have that on a PowerPoint, you can just follow me again. All right? So Matthew chapter 25, beginning from verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and trusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. And so also the one with two bags of gold gained two bags more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in, with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good faithful and servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out, and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that, so you knew that harvest, you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of the gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more 
and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God. Lord, we come before you this afternoon once again. Thank you for the morning session. Thank you for the break that we have. And now, Lord, as we plot on for this third teaching here on the parable of the talent, we once again pray for your grace to fall upon us. And now, Lord, as we commit ourselves to, to, you, to you, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you. Amen. All right, this afternoon, we're continuing with this parable. And we're going to study how Jesus continues to underscore or and expand on the theme of getting ready for his return and in particularly his warnings about the day of judgment now let me emphasize again that all the three parables in matthew chapter 25 are parables of judgment each of this parable makes similar points but if you take that all together all right there is a cumulative effect that is strong You see, in the context of Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus was about to go to the cross. And he was preparing his disciples, telling them that he will not see him anymore. And then he reminded them again that he will come back one day and he will return. That this time, if he returned the second time, he's coming back to judge all men. Remember the first time that Jesus came on this earth, it was to save us. So when Jesus' Jesus first coming is to be a saviour of the world, saviour of all of us. But his second coming right now, the next time that he comes back, he's not only coming back as a saviour, but he's coming back as a judge. And so we must always be ready to face him face to face on that day of judgment. So let's quickly do this review of this parable. Now we were told that this a rich man you know, it's about to go on a long journey. He calls three of his servants together and then he gives them money to be used while he is gone. He gives to the first servant five talents, the second two talents, and the third and the final servant had one talent. Now, in Palestine, you need to understand, a talent was not a coin, but it was a measure of weight. And since Jesus did not specify the kind of coinage that's used in this story, it is impossible to calculate how valuable the talents were. All right, but most scholars seem to agree that the amount of each talent was a very large amount. Now, for those of you who have read the book by Bishop Emeritus Robert Solomon, you know, he had a bit, this book on, on parables, and one of those parables is on the parable of talents. And so in that parable, he, he, he wrote, okay, that five talents was estimated to be about U.S. $1.5 million dollars. And then for two talents, it was about 600,000 US dollars. And that one talent was still worth quite a lot. It's US $300,000, a quarter million. Okay? Well, that is certainly a lot of money. But whatever the amount of the talent is unimportant, so is the fact that the parable is about money. You see, the English term, the word talent, is derived from this particular parable. And in common usage today, talent is often referred to the natural endowments of a person. Well, that is also appropriate usage. But in biblical usage, the talent symbolizes the giftedness that is bestowed on each person who is graced with a kingdom life 
and with how we use our gifts in the service of the kingdom of God. And it is, you can find this, find this in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, uh, 12, where Paul lists about, you know, the, all the spiritual gifts. So all I can say to you right now shortly here is, is that all of us, if you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have at least one talent. None of us is without any talent. So every one of us has been entrusted with some, uh, uh, some talent, some more, some less. Okay? Well, Bishop John Rye, the first Anglican bishop of Liverpool, says rightly, anything whereby we may glorify God is considered a talent. And so, a talent basically means the gifts that God has given us, it can include our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affection, our privilege as the members of Christ's church. And more importantly, you know, all of us, remind you again, have at least one talent. Now, the point of the story is that waiting for Jesus' return and being ready for Him are not passive matters. What the parable is trying to emphasize to us is this, that we must work faithfully and energetically for Him now. The parable tells us that disciples who are prepared for their master's return will always demonstrate their intentional productivity. Now, one way to help us understand and appreciate this parable better, better, I believe, is to focus on the tone of the conversation that is seen here in this particular parable. I believe the decisive matter in which the two good servants and the one bad servant related to this master here. You can, you can almost hear this in the conversation here that it's a subtle nuance. You see, the faithful servants serve well because they love their master and they just wanted to please him. On the other hand, the wicked servant failed to serve well because he actually hated and resented his master. And so when the master returns for accounting time, you know, the faithful servants tell what they had done. And their words do not just merely report what they have done, but really, if you study their words carefully, their response carefully, they convey other nuances. For example, you know, the man with the for five talents, you know, came to the master with two bags containing the five talents more. And he literally says, Master, you know, five talents that you place in my hands. Look, you know, I've made an additional five talents. I've gained five more for you. Now, if you can just use your imagination just for a while, you know, you can just reflect on those words and imagine, you know, you can feel almost the, the glee in him, the joy and the pride in this, in this uh, first servant down here with that ten, five talents. You know, you can imagine that his eyes were just sparkling and he's bubbling all over and he's thoroughly thrilled as he presents, you know, his talents, his double talents, you know, to the master here. And as he looks invitedly, you know, as the master started to count, you see, this man has been waiting all his life for this moment and he's pleased when his master finally commended, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, he must have been very, very pleased. And of course, the master was so happy with him. And you know, the modern equivalent with well done is like, you know, great, you know, excellent, wonderful, good job. So this was the commendations. And so it's the same also with the, the servant with the two talents. Okay, it's the same identical word down there. Dr. Solomon in his book on the parable, on this particular parable, he told, he says, you know, he told a very inspiring story about an American pastor by the name of Reverend Trock Moten 
the pastor of a church in Shangrin Falls, who once preached on the parable of this parable of talents to his congregation. And you know what? At the end of the sermon, he shocked the congregation where he literally took out a thick wet of $50 note. And then he gave out to the congregation. Each one received $50. And then he challenged the congregation. He says, well, let's lift out this parable for this week. Right? With the $50 that you have, come back in a week's time and see how you have, you know, increased the interest of God's money. Well, what happened was this. You know, the pastor explained that he was distributing this money that was actually a loan from an anonymous donor who donated $40,000. And so, he gave each member, so he came, they came up with this very innovative idea. All right? And so, what happened was this. The church member excitedly, you know, set off to live out the parable for the entire week. And it was said that one retired pilot used the money, rented a plane, and charged people for half-hour flights and raised $700. Another person, you know, made tomato soup, canned them, and made $180 out of the $50. So others made all kinds of things, but whatever it is, you know, there was not one member who didn't do anything about that $50. They came back, they almost doubled, almost doubled the amount that was given to them. You know, as I was thinking about this particular parable here, I, I understand recently Amokyo just completed your ANA, right? And you just, you see a shot of half a million dollars, right? May I suggest and give ideas to the leadership and wonder whether, <laughs> since you guys want to see race fun, right? Maybe out of this cohort, like, because you, you know the urgency, like eternity. You heard this parable here. <laughs> you might want to challenge and give each other $50. Okay, pastor, okay, uh, lay leader, whatever, okay. Give each person $50. And maybe by the end of June, and maybe not so by the end of June, come back and see whether, you know, bring more than $50. Like, come back. And I think by then, you probably, maybe you should challenge the whole church to do this. Okay, anyway. All right. So what we see here is this. The two servants, the five talents and the two talents, were very faithful. But the last servant, all right, by contrast, he was hardly joyful at all. And we can hardly fail to hear the angry, self-justifying, accusing tone of this servant who hid the master's talent in the earth. You see, the self-justifying, angry servant replied, Master! You know, I knew that you are a hard man. Harvesting where you have not sown in, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So, I was afraid. And so I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. And so, nah, this is what belongs to you. And so if you read this superficially and quickly, you might conclude that the last servant's comments about his master might be true. Might be true that the master is a hard man, you know, harvesting where he had not sown. But if you study carefully, you realize the accusation was simply not true. You see, the truth of the matter was this. The master was not a hard man. Because if he was a hard man, he would have been so generous with his money. Remember, you know, that the equivalent of one talent is about, you know, U.S. Sorry, the five talents that was given to the, the first servant here was about U.S. $1.5 million. And the second talent was 600000 and then the last one, 300000 So that's quite a lot of money. Now, if you have so much money with you, if you're really a hard person, would you entrust it to your servant? You'll probably just entrust it to the, you know, your, your loved ones. 
you know, your wife or your children, but your servants. Uh, these are servants. And so here we can see the irony of the whole situation, you know, the contradiction of this man's, you know, words. It doesn't match, you know. So we can almost hear the, the contempt that he resents, as he resentfully throws his talent back to the master. He says, nah, here's what belongs to you. It was exactly as the master had given him, not a bit more, not a bit less. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, you can hardly fail to hear the angry, self-justifying and accusing tone of this servant who hid the master's talent in the earth. And in response, the master condemns him both for his wickedness and for being lazy. Wicked because he accused his master unjustly. Lazy because he did not faithfully use what was given to him. And then the master then gives that one talent, uh, one talent to the one who has ten more, on the principle that everyone who has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. And he then condemned the last servant and cast that last servant outside into the darkness. Now, what can we learn from this parable? Well, let me suggest for you three clear lessons. The first lesson is this, and that is to remind us again, there is a coming day of judgment. Now, this is very obvious from this parable as from the rest of the parables in Matthew 25. You know, unfortunately for most of my life as a Christian, you know, I've been a Christian for more than 40 years. Whenever I hear of sermons being preached on these parables in Matthew 25, I don't seem to recall or to remember hearing much of the day of judgment being emphasized at all, or preached at all. You know, almost always, the day of judgment is muted, glossed over. We focus more on the talents or these things, but we don't come to the part where it's most important about judgment. And today, it seems to me that most preachers seem embarrassed or even apologetic to mention even about judgment and hell. And yet, we must talk about it. Because, why? Because our Lord Jesus talked about it. Alright? And I make no apologies. I know this is going to be quite difficult and heavy for all of you here. You asked for it. You invited me, so I give it to you. <laughs> okay? But really, I make no apologies. Because I think to be a faithful preacher of the Word of God, we need to preach the whole counsel of God. And the whole counsel of God is not just about heaven but it's also about hell. All right? So let me ask you this question. What do you think most people will think when people think of death or dying? You know, my guess is this, that most people don't want to think about it at all. Choy, 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 choy. Touch wood, touch wood, touch wood every time. And one of the reasons, I think, is because the thought of death is very unsettling, especially you know, when we have to think about our mortality. And the truth of the matter is, the finality and the uncertainty that surrounds death can be frightening, even for people of faith. You know, I just did a, a funeral of a very rich man in Singapore. And I tell you, this is the first time that I ever encountered anything. All right? At... You know, the, on the funeral day itself, you know, where we go to Mandai Crematorium and then the final part, you know, where we will push the body into the viewing hall gallery and for the body to be cremated. Well, this family specifically expressed 
that they don't want to go and view that last part. Well, this is the first time I encountered it. And not only that, they didn't want their own families to go in. They didn't allow any of the guests to go in also. So in the end, I went in myself. <laughs> but, but to be fair, there was one daughter and their family who joined me. You know, this is a, a family of four siblings, okay? One passed away, left three or then three surviving one. And so the other two didn't join, but only one sister and her family joined me. The rest, so that's the first time, you know, I ever done a funeral where the whole family does not want to send off, you know, the last final part to see their dad or their mom or the grandfather or grandfather off, you know. And one of the things that the woman said to me was this because, you know, she, she somehow, she didn't want to talk about death. I don't want to talk about death. I don't want to think about death. But it's funny, isn't it? The whole funeral is about death, okay? Well, and so what happened is some people don't talk about that. And if we do think about death, or we think about the afterlife, and most people, I suspect, think of the afterlife in rather pleasant terms. You know, for most Christians, you know, we will think of what? Going to heaven, you know, worshipping God all day long, floating on clouds. Well, I don't know where we get all these ideas, but, you know, these are the ideas, you know. And, um, I mean, I preached this sermon about heaven and hell before. So if you missed that, maybe you can dig up some of the sermons there. Uh, you can go. But anyway, what I want to say to you is this, that most people, when they talk about afterlife, they always think in pleasant terms. But the truth of the matter is this, very few consider that the afterlife may be much worse instead of pleasant. You know, and there are many, many Christians that I know of who cannot imagine that the Almighty God as a God of judgment. And this attitude has caused theologian R.C. Sproul, and he speaks of what he's called the doctrine, doctrine of justification by death. You see, Protestants and Catholics used to argue over the word justification. Protestant says, you know, justification is by faith alone, and Catholic says that it is by faith plus works. But today, you know, many people seem to think that all that one needs to get to heaven is to die. And that's basically what R.C. Sproul is talking about, justification by death. That is, the way to heaven is just simply to die and then we'll be in heaven. Now, we need to understand this. The world that we live is an evil world. And you need to understand that not all sins are being judged in this world. And not all evil deeds that have been done are being dealt with. And not all good deeds are being rewarded. And so it's true. We live in a very unfair world. Now, if this is a moral universe and it is created and ruled by a moral God, then, then surely there must be a reckoning hereafter in which those scales are balanced and importantly, evil must be punished. You know, those of you who have gone to theological schools, you would know that in most theological volumes on the topic of eschatology, which is the study of the end times or the last things, there are three great points of emphasis in the doctrine of the last thing or eschatology. And what are the three important doctrines? First, the return of Christ. Second, the resurrection of the body. Okay? And the third, final judgment. But let me tell you of the three, 
The only one that is truly reasonable is the last one. And that is the final judgment. Now, why is that so? Well, let me explain to you. Because if you were to look at the emphasis on the return of Christ, the question that we would like to ask ourselves is, why should Christ return a second time? Because if you study carefully, there's no reason why Jesus should return a second time. Because the first time He came, remember, He was rejected. If our Lord Jesus should write all of us off and never give so much a second thought to the world or to all of us here or this whole earth of, earth of ours, that would be understandable. And it is the same with the resurrection. You know, it says, the Word of God says, dust to dust, you will return. And thus you will return. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. Now, if that, it, that is all there is to what this life is all about, who can complain? We had our lives. Why should we be expecting anything more? And so, if you're honest about it, there is nothing logical in either of these two matters themselves. And that is the doctrine of Christ returning and the resurrection of the body. But judgment, well, let me say, this is the most logical thing in the universe. Because every story in this chapter, chapter 25, cries out that there must certainly be a final day of reckoning. Like I say, not all sins are dealt with in this world. Not all evils are being dealt with. And not all are rewarded in this life for all the good deeds that they've done. And so listen carefully. Without the doctrine of judgment, there will be no logical justification why Jesus should come back again or why we should be resurrected. You see, the final day of judgment is the most logical and reasonable belief if we believe in a moral God. You see, a God who is all love, and turns a blind eye to all injustices and evil in this world is not a moral God. Did you hear me? A God who is all love, but turns a blind eye to all the injustices and evil in this world is not a moral God. But we thank God that the God that we serve is a moral God. And He's not only the God full of love, but He is at the same time also the God who is judge of all. And so the final judgment must take place. Why? Because so that God can come back again and determine the condition of each person's heart and display His glory to all mankind by demonstrating His justice and His mercy at the same time. And the Bible teaches unmistakably with much clarity that all believers... All right, in Christ, will one day have to give an account of their lives to the Lord. Romans chapter 14, verses 10 to 12 says that. The final judgment will be entirely fair. Each person, each of us, whether destined for eternal glory or for eternal condemnation, will be dealt with fairly at the final judgment than at any previous time. Okay? God will judge impartially according to each one's deed. 1 Peter 1.17 says that. But God shows no partiality or favoritism. Romans chapter 2 verse 11. And God will be glorified in His final day and we will all cry on that day. And none of us will ever say that God is unfair. All of us will cry out like in the book of Revelation chapter 19 verse 1 and 2. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for His judgments are true and just. 
And you know, let me just say this. According to Scripture, there are three types of person who will stand before God's judgment on Judgment Day. The first is those who do not know Christ at all. The second is those who have truly accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the third is this, those who have a form of religion, but not a life-changing reality. And it is in this last category that the wicked servant falls into, and that is having a form of religion, but not a life-changing reality. And this parable teaches us that one day there will be a reckoning for such people and for all the talents that God has entrusted to us. So that's the first thing, first lesson that we learn from this parable. There will be a day of judgment. The second and somewhat surprising lesson of this parable is this, is the emphasis on works. A judgment by works. Now, in this parable of the talents, judgment is based on a use or misuse of our talents or our works. Well, in this, the first parable, the bridesmaid were judged because of what? Because of the relationship, whether they had a relationship with the bridegroom. But in this second parable, the judgment is a judgment on the use or the misuse of talents. Now, I'm sure this sometimes troubles most Protestant, and that, that is most of us here. And we've been taught that salvation is by grace alone, through faith, apart from works. And so how do we understand this judgment by works? Well, let me explain this. Let me underscore that the teaching in Matthew 24 and 25 are all addressed to believers. You need to understand and set this context right. When Jesus told this parable, He was telling His disciples, not to unbelievers, not to, not to others that were outside. He was in the inner group, the disciples. Okay? And so there's no question. The other second thing is this. First thing, it was addressed to all believers. Second, there is no question that our salvation is by faith, true faith in Christ. Because Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, and this is true faith, not by works. It is a gift of God. And so that is clear. All right? All Christians must have faith for their salvation. What I want to bring to your attention is this, that what these parables is demonstrating for us or clarifying for us is to explain what kind of faith is needed. So what kind of faith is needed? Well, the parable answers for us that our faith, whatever it is, must not be a dead faith. In other words, a dead faith saves no one. And this teaching, you know, in this teaching, Jesus clearly shows that he's one with the Apostle James. You remember in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if a man, man claims to have faith, but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And usually, you know, James is contrasted with the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul says, you know, salvation is by grace. But I want you also to remember 
that they're elsewhere in, the, in Paul's letter where Paul mentions about our deeds are important as well. For example, in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 or verses 7 to 8, he says, Paul says, To those who by persistent in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, God will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. And of course, the famous passage is Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul tells us to work out you know, our salvation with fear and trembling. What I'm doing for you here is I want you to see that the teachings of Jesus, our Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle James, they're all affirming the fact that works are important. So the question is, does that mean that we are saved by works after all? Were the reformers wrong? Was Martin Luther wrong? Well, the answer is no. They are not wrong. But what these passages reveal to us is this, and that is, if we truly are born again, and if we truly love God, then our faith will be authenticated by our works. And this is the unbreakable connection between what we believe and what we do. Because if we truly believe the gospel because we have been born again, then our lives, our behaviors will inevitably begin to authenticate and lift out that superior moral life of Christ that we believe within our hearts. You see, the new nature does not manifest itself fully all at once. But if we are justified, we will have it. And it will, as we continue to go, it will increasingly and inevitably express itself in faithful and loving service and works to our Master, Lord Jesus Christ. So let me say that again. Okay? I don't want to be misquoted or misunderstood. Let me say this. We are not justified by works. If we're trying to be justified by works, then we are not Christians. But neither can we claim to be Christians if we do not have works. If we are not working for Christ, we are not justified. But there is an additional warning here. We notice that all the three servants were given unequal amounts of talents. One five, one two, and one one. Note this, the point of the parable is not about unequal distribution of the talents, nor is it because of failure to multiply more with what one has. The point is this, the point of the parable is about what one does with what one has. You see, the wicked servant was judged not because he had failed to gain as much more as the other two servants. Rather, he was judged for failing to use what he had because he had hidden his valuable talent in the ground and he did nothing about it. So there's a second thing that we learn from this parable here on judgment by works. Now the third and final lesson is this. Our faithfulness to God is contingent on our view of God. Now let me just say this. Inaccurate views of God allow us to rationalize our irresponsibility and our unfaithfulness. Now, this is vitally important. It is vitally important for us to have a correct perception of God's character, His activities, and His goal for us. Now, and that's the reason why it's so important to have 
you know, balanced and solid Bible teaching, preaching the whole counsel of the Word of God. And our views of God will determine our behavior and our response. You see, this parable reveals that the wicked servant actually had a very perverted view, had a very unbalanced view of his master. You see, and as a result of that perverted view, he then provided with an ex, you know, he, the excuse for his personal irresponsibility. The servant who was given one talent hit his ground and, and he explained it in this way because he said that he knew his master nature all too well. He says, Master, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. You see, that was his view of his master. His view of his master was that he was a hard man. Well, the truth of the matter is this. The servant actually didn't know his master at all. But because of his perverted view, as a result of his perverted view of his master, he began to justify his behavior with excuses. You know, friends, it's foolish to make excuses and as you can see in this parable, it certainly did not fool the master. But you know what? Many people do this today. You see, the parable teaches us that a truthful understanding of God will bring about a productive investment of our lives. If our view of God is unbalanced or faulty, it will result in us making all kinds of excuses for our behavior at irresponsibility. And so the question is, what about us? You know, we may not have such a view of God, that God is, you know, uh, hard. He's a taskmaster. Many of us don't have this kind of view. But you know, I think what we have of the view of God is that He's God full of grace, full of compassion, full of, you know, um, compassion, merciful all the time. And so in our own understanding is this, you know, if we have not been faithful to God in any way, oh, don't worry, God will understand. I confess my sin. God is always gracious because He says that, you know, He will forgive my sin. And so, and so this is a justification. And sometimes unwittingly, we are making excuses for not doing anything at all. We're not living the full Christian life. You know, friends, if we study carefully, this is one side of God. It's not the full side of God. Yes, God is loving. God is merciful, kind, compassionate. But there's another side of God too that tells us that God is also a God who judges. That this is a God who requires us to be responsible. And this is a God too that one day wants us to account for what we have done in our lives. So you see, if you minus this part of God, you take only this part where God is full of compassion and love, of course. And maybe that's the reason why you find that in most churches, you find a 20-80 principle. 20% were always, you know, all sold up for God. But the other 80% just sit down and do nothing. Just come Sunday after Sunday, you know, in church. And so the point is this, that our views of God does affect our behavior. And that's the reason why here, in this particular camp here, I want to help us to understand there's two sides of God. And that's why in Romans 11, you remember Paul says this, remember the sternness and the kindness of God. Sternness to those who fell, 
kindness to you, provided you continue on that in that kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. See, sometimes we gloss over such scripture, but scripture is clear. There are passages of scripture that tells us that although God is kind, gracious, compassionate, but there's another side of God where He requires accountability. He wants us to be responsible because one day He will call us to account. The point of this parable basically, parable basically is this, is that we must avoid a do-nothing Christianity. We must avoid a do-nothing Christianity. See, one commentator wrote, to have done no harm is praise for a stone, not for a man. Because a stone does nothing. But you know, the situation here is worse than that. To have done nothing is proof that we do not love Jesus Christ, do not belong to Him, and do not have a share in His kingdom. It is to perish forever. You see, humble ministry to the lowliest is to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ's own humility. You know, when Jesus left the glories of heaven to come and bring salvation to all of us here, He came to us as weak, downtrodden, and He comes to minister in our midst. And Jesus once said, I came not to be served, but to serve. So let me ask you, if our Master and Lord said that He demonstrated these words in His life, I came not to be served, but to serve, could we do anything less? And that's the reason why we serve. The reason why we serve. The reason why we use all the talents that God has given us. We serve because we love Him to show our love for Him, to Him. We love Him because He loved us first. We are lifted up because He lifted us up. And we must never forget that all that the Lord has given to us. And so in response to all that love and kindness God has shown to us, when we serve, we are telling God, this is what I'm showing back to you, how much I love you, how much I believe in you. You know, friends, as I say this, also, I want to be very careful. I want us also to be very careful that as we do about serving, we must be careful that our religious duty and public ministry can easily turn into a kind of hypocrisy. You know what I mean? In other words, you serve in order to, for your own self-benefit or to, you know, for, to achieve accolades from people, to receive commendation. So your motive is less than pure. A true humble servant of God serve purely to please the master and nothing else. And that's the reason why sometimes you know, I find it very sad when I encounter you know, people serve in the ministry, and when their ministry are not appreciated, they get very upset. You know, say, well, you know, if that's the case, you know, I don't want to serve anymore. Like, nobody appreciates me. I don't want to serve. You see, that's a wrong attitude. That reflects a certain kind of hypocrisy that Jesus consistently condemned in the Bible, and that is serving out of the desire to receive community or professional commendation. Rather, when we serve, we serve, we serve really with a heart, just purely just want to love God. It doesn't matter if others don't appreciate it. It doesn't matter if others don't know or don't even see what we do. The point is this, God sees and God knows. And if He sees and if He knows, and one day you can be sure you will receive your reward. You see, a heart that's truly been transformed by the grace of God will always be productive. And people who have truly been transformed by the grace of Christ will just not sit around and do nothing. 
but they will live a life to serve the master and his people. And they do this out of humility, out of gratitude, out of love for their master who has saved them. Now, as I end this time now here, I'm sure many of you know this name, Alfred Nobel. Alfred Nobel is a Swedish chemist who made his fortune by inventing dynamite and other powerful explosive which was brought, bought by government and countries you know, produce weapon. And as a result of that, he became really, very, very rich. But it was reported that one day, you know, when Alfred Nobel's brother died, one newspaper accidentally printed Alfred Nobel's obituary because they thought he died instead of his brother. And in that obituary, Alfred Nobel was described as a man who became rich from enabling people to kill each other in unprecedented number. You know, when Alfred Nobel read that obituary of his, he was totally shaken because he's never seen himself in that light. He's never seen himself from that kind of assessment about him. And as a result of that, from that day onwards, Alfred Nobel resolved to use his fortune to reward accomplishment that benefited humanity. And today, you know, we know that the reward that Alfred Nobel had bequeathed to the world is called what? The Nobel Peace Prize. What's my point? My point is this. Alfred Nobel had a rare opportunity to look at the assessment of his life at its end. And by the grace of God, had enough time to be alive, to have the opportunity to change that assessment in his life. So let me ask all of you, if you were to put yourself in Alfred Nobel's place, if today, if you have the opportunity to read your obituary, not written by any human hands, but written by an angel from heaven, from heaven's point of view, what do you think will be written in your obituary? What do you think will be heaven's assessment of you right now? You know, the bottom line is this. What we do in this life is of eternal significance. Our life begins with our choice to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. What these parables is em emphasizing for us time and time again is this. Alright? Accepting the Lord as your Savior is not the end of all. And then you wait till the rest of your life, you know, then you go to heaven and die and go to heaven. That's not the case. If you read the parables here, we are very clear down here that the Lord has told us that we need to continue to build, firstly, our personal relationship with Christ. In that parable of the bridesmaid, we learned, you know, how to set aside time that we need to read His Word, praying, becoming more acquainted with Him. And that's important for us because if not, by the end of your life, when you appear in heaven, Jesus will say to you, I don't know you, sorry. Sorry. The other thing here in this parable is this. Is that we must do it. All the resources and talents that God has given us 
for His glory, serving Him in our church, in our world, and in our homes. Well, my friends, we have been given fair warning about what lies ahead for each of us at the end of our life. Because this parable tells us in no uncertain terms that there will be a final examination of all of us, a day of judgment. And it will be administered by the fairest and yet strictest master and Lord in the universe. And so, how seriously do we take this clear teaching of Scripture is demonstrated by how seriously we are preparing for that day to come. Let's pray. You know, again, I just want to give us some time to just mull through what you have just heard. Not another easy message to hear. But you have to remember this. Burying your head like an ostrich in the ground and pretending that nothing of this is going to happen is not going to solve the issue. Because the truth of the matter is the day of reckoning may come sooner than you think. If Jesus doesn't come back again anytime now, the next thing that you will meet him is when you die. So the question is this. In this parable, we have learned that God has given us, each of us, talents, resources. And so up to this point in your life, let me ask you, honestly, can you say honestly that you have been using all these resources for His glory? And let me just say this again. Serving God doesn't mean that you need just to serve God in the church. As I mentioned to you, that we are not just citizens of heaven, but we are also citizens of the world. So when God brings us to account for our stewardship, He's asking us whether we have used our gifts responsibly in order to serve Him in the world, in our church, in our homes. Can you honestly say it? say that you have done so without any selfish motive. And of course, when God gives you those gifts, some of those gifts are really gifts for your occupation, where you are, your vocation. There's nothing wrong for you to earn a living out of that. But if all your life is just about you, with all that money that you have earned, with all that resources that you, you just kept it for yourself and your own enjoyment, then let me just say this, that you are in danger of what this parable is all about, the wicked servant who has hid his talent and done nothing. So I pray that you will seriously consider and price while you still have time. As you look at the life of Alfred Nobel, thank God that he had time to undo what he did because he didn't want to leave a legacy behind knowing that he has done and contributed something into the world for only his own personal gain and only that 
but because of his selfless action, it resulted in the death of many people. And so Alfred Nobel had the chance to reverse that. And so I pray that you will make the most of your life from today onwards, not to waste your time. And so in your personal time, I want you to seriously ask God, Lord, I don't want to do and live a faith that is a date faith. Tell him that you now know that you truly love him, then you will express yourself to serve him in all the gifts and talents he have given you. And so you just do your business just with God right now. Again, come in humble confession. Confess to the Lord. Up to this point of your life, as you personally assess yourself, if you have not been living up to what a true disciple of Christ is, like the two faithful servants who's multiplied their gifts for the Master's glory, just come before God and honestly confess. And after confession, ask also for His grace from today onwards to help you and guide you on how you can use your gifts not just to live for yourself, but to live for God's glory. So take some time, and in just a few moments' time, I will just close us in prayer. Let us pray. Father, we again thank you for this word that you brought to us again. Forgive us too also for the many times when we think of the hereafter life. We always think in terms of heaven as a very pleasant place. And seldom will we think that the worst may not be, or rather the afterlife may not be as pleasant as it may seem. And there's always that possibility that we may miss it. And so today we know, and today we also know that we're not here just to be professing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But Lord, there are responsibility. There are tasks. There are things that you want us to do to serve you in our church, in our world, in our homes for your glory. We ask again for your forgiveness where we have failed you up to this point. But we ask again that your grace will see us fit enough to continue to preserve us long enough so that we will make it right. From today onwards, we will seriously think about all the gifts, the talents that you have endowed us with and seriously think about using all these to serve you for your glory. Lord, have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.